Chapter One of Book Fourth of Les Misérables, Volume Two, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Les Misérables, Volume Two, by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Habergood. Book Fourth, The Gorbeau Hovel. Chapter One, Master Gorbeau. Forty years ago, a rambler who had ventured into that unknown country of the Salpetriere, and who had mounted to the Barrière d'Italie by way of the boulevard, reached a point where it might be said that Paris disappeared. It was no longer solitude, for there were passers-by. It was not the country, for there were houses and streets. It was not the city, for the streets had ruts like highways, and the grass grew in them. It was not a village, the houses were too lofty. What was it, then? It was an inhabited spot, where there was no one. It was a desert place, where there was someone. It was a boulevard of the great city, a street of Paris, more wild at night than the forest, more gloomy by day than a cemetery. It was the old quarter of the Marché aux Chevaux. The rambler, if he risked himself outside the four decrepit walls of this Marché aux Chevaux, if he consented even to pass beyond the Rue du Petit Banquier, after leaving on his right a garden protected by high walls, then a field in which ten bark mills rose like gigantic beaver huts, then an enclosure encumbered with timber with a heap of stumps, sawdust and shavings, on which stood a large dog barking, then a long, low, utterly dilapidated wall with a little black door in mourning laden with mosses which were covered with flowers in the spring, then, in the most deserted spot, a frightful and decrepit building, on which ran the inscription in large letters, Post no bills. This daring rambler would have reached little-known latitudes at the corner of the Rue des Vignes Saint-Marcel. There, near a factory, and between two garden walls, there could be seen at that epoch a mean building, which at the first glance seemed as small as a thatched hovel, and which was, in reality, as large as a cathedral. It presented its side and gable to the public road, hence its apparent diminutiveness. Nearly the whole of the house was hidden. Only the door and one window could be seen. This hovel was only one story high. The first detail that struck the observer was that the door could never have been anything but the door of a hovel, while the window, if it had been carved out of dressed stone instead of being in rough masonry, might have been the lattice of a lordly mansion. The door was nothing but a collection of worm-eaten planks 
roughly bound together by cross-beams which resembled roughly hewn logs. It opened directly on a steep staircase of lofty steps, muddy, chalky, plaster-stained, dusty steps of the same width as itself, which could be seen from the street, running straight up like a ladder, and disappearing in the darkness between the two walls. The top of the shapeless bay into which this door shut was masked by a narrow scantling in the centre of which a triangular hole had been sewed, which served both as a wicket and air-hole when the door was closed. On the inside of the door the figures fifty-two had been traced with a couple of strokes of a brush dipped in ink, and above the scantling the same hand had daubed the number fifty, so that one hesitated. Where was one? Above the door, it said, number fifty. The inside replied, no, number fifty-two. No one knows what dust-colored figures were suspended like draperies from the triangular opening. The window was large, sufficiently elevated, garnished with Venetian blinds, and with a frame in large square panes. Only these large panes were suffering from various wounds, which were both concealed and betrayed by an ingenious paper bandage. And the blinds, dislocated and unpasted, threatened passers-by, rather than screened the occupants. The horizontal slats were missing here and there, and had been naively replaced with boards nailed on perpendicularly, so that what began as a blind ended as a shutter. This door with an unclean, and this window with an honest though dilapidated air, thus beheld on the same house, produced the effect of two incomplete beggars walking side by side, with different means beneath the same rags, the one having always been a mendicant, and the other having once been a gentleman. The staircase led to a very vast edifice which resembled a shed which had been converted into a house. This edifice had for its intestinal tube a long corridor on which opened to right and left sorts of compartments of varied dimensions which were inhabitable under stress of circumstances, and rather more like stalls than cells. These chambers received their light from the vague waste grounds in the neighbourhood. All this was dark, disagreeable, wan, melancholy, sepulchral. Traversed according as the crevices lay in the roof or in the door, by cold rays or by icy winds. An interesting and picturesque peculiarity of this sort of dwelling is the enormous size of the spiders. To the left of the entrance door, on the boulevard side, at about the height of a man from the ground, a small window, which had been walled up, formed a square niche full of stones, which the children had thrown there as they passed by. A portion of this building has recently been demolished. From what still remains of it, one can form a judgment as to what it was in former days. As a whole, it was not over a hundred years old. 
a hundred years is youth in a church and age in a house. It seems as though man's lodging partook of his ephemeral character, and God's house of his eternity. The postman called the house number 5052, but it was known in the neighborhood as the Gorbeau house. Let us explain whence this appellation was derived. Collectors of petty details, who become herbalists of anecdotes, and prick slippery dates into their memories with a pin, know that there was in Paris, during the last century, about 1770, two attorneys at the Châtelet, named one Corbeau, Raven, the other Renard, Fox. The two names had been forestalled by La Fontaine. The opportunity was too fine for the lawyers. They made the most of it. A parody was immediately put in circulation in the galleries of the courthouse, in verses that limped a little. Maître Corbeau, sur un dossier perché, tenait dans son bec une saisie exécutoire. Maître Renard, par l'odeur alléchée, lui fit à peu près cette histoire. Eh, bonjour etc. The two honest practitioners, embarrassed by the jests, and finding the bearing of their heads interfered with by the shouts of laughter which followed them, resolved to get rid of their names, and hit upon the expedient of applying to the king. Their petition was presented to Louis the fifteenth on the same day when the papal nuncio, on the one hand, and the cardinal de la Roche-Aimont, on the other, both devoutly kneeling, were each engaged in putting on, in his majesty's presence, a slipper on the bare feet of Madame du Barry, who had just got out of bed. The king, who was laughing, continued to laugh, passed gaily from the two bishops to the two lawyers, and bestowed on these limbs of the law their former names, or nearly so. By the king's command, Maître Corbeau was permitted to add a tail to his initial letter and to call himself Gorbeau. Maître Renard was less lucky. All he obtained was leave to place a P in front of his R and to call himself Prenard, so that the second name bore almost as much resemblance as the first. Now, according to local tradition, this Maître Gorbeau had been the proprietor of the building numbered 5052 on the boulevard de l'Hôpital. He was even the author of the monumental window. Hence the edifice bore the name of the Gorbeau house. Opposite this house, among the trees of the boulevard, rose a great elm which was three-quarters dead. Almost directly facing it opens the rue de la Barrière des Gobelins, a street then without houses, unpaved, planted with unhealthy trees, which was green or muddy according to the season, and which ended squarely in the exterior wall of Paris. An odour of copperas issued in puffs from the roofs of the neighbouring factory. The barrier was close at hand. In 1823, the city wall was still in existence.
This barrier itself evoked gloomy fancies in the mind. It was the road to Bicetre. It was through it that, under the Empire and the Restoration, prisoners condemned to death re-entered Paris on the day of their execution. It was there that, about 1829, was committed that mysterious assassination, called the assassination of the Fontainebleau barrier, whose authors justice was never able to discover. A melancholy problem which has never been elucidated, a frightful enigma which has never been unriddled. Take a few steps, and you come upon that fatal Rue Croulbarbe, where Yulbach stabbed the goat-girl of Ivry to the sound of thunder, as in the melodramas. A few paces more, and you arrive at the abominable pollarded elms of the Barrière Saint-Jacques, that expedient of the philanthropist to conceal the scaffold, that miserable and shameful place de grove of a shopkeeping and bourgeois society, which recoiled before the death penalty, neither daring to abolish it with grandeur, nor to uphold it with authority. Leaving aside this place Saint-Jacques, which was, as it were, predestined, and which has always been horrible, probably the most mournful spot on that mournful boulevard seven and thirty years ago, was the spot which even today is so unattractive, where stood the building number fifty fifty two. Bourgeois houses only began to spring up there twenty five years later. The place was unpleasant. In addition to the gloomy thoughts which assailed one there, one was conscious of being between the Salpetriere, a glimpse of whose dome could be seen, and Bicetre, whose outskirts one was fairly touching, that is to say, between the madness of women and the madness of men. As far as the eye could see, one could perceive nothing but the abattoirs, the city wall, and the fronts of a few factories, resembling barracks or monasteries. Everywhere about stood hovels, rubbish, ancient walls blackened like sealcloths, new white walls like winding-sheets. Everywhere parallel rows of trees, buildings erected on a line, flat constructions, long, cold rows, and the melancholy sadness of right angles. Not an unevenness of the ground, not a caprice in the architecture, not a fold. The ensemble was glacial, regular, hideous. Nothing oppresses the heart like symmetry. It is because symmetry is ennui, and ennui is at the very foundation of grief. Despair yawns. Something more terrible than a hell where one suffers may be imagined, and that is a hell where one is bored. If such a hell existed, that bit of the boulevard de l'Hôpital might have formed the entrance to it. Nevertheless, at nightfall, at the moment when the daylight is vanishing, especially in winter, at the hour when the twilight breeze tears from the elms their last russet leaves, when the darkness is deep and starless, 
or when the moon and the wind are making openings in the clouds and losing themselves in the shadows, this boulevard suddenly becomes frightful. The black lines sink inwards and are lost in the shades like morsels of the infinite. The passer-by cannot refrain from recalling the innumerable traditions of the place which are connected with the gibbet. The solitude of this spot, where so many crimes have been committed, had something terrible about it. One almost had a presentiment of meeting with traps in that darkness. All the confused forms of the darkness seemed suspicious, and the long, hollow square, of which one caught a glimpse between each tree, seemed graves. By day it was ugly, in the evening melancholy, by night it was sinister. In summer, at twilight, one saw, here and there, a few old women seated at the foot of the elm, on benches mouldy with rain. These good old women were fond of begging. However, this quarter, which had a superannuated, rather than an antique air, was standing even then to transformation. Even at that time, anyone who was desirous of seeing it had to make haste. Each day some detail of the whole effect was disappearing. For the last twenty years, the station of the Orleans Railway has stood beside the old Faubourg and distracted it as it does today. Wherever it is placed on the borders of a capital, a railway station is the death of a suburb and the birth of a city. It seems as though, around these great centers of the movements of a people, the earth, full of germs, trembled and yawned to engulf the ancient dwellings of men and to allow new ones to spring forth at the rattle of these powerful machines, at the breath of these monstrous horses of civilization which devour coal and vomit fire. The old houses crumbled, and new ones rise. Since the Orleans Railway has invaded the region of the Salpêtrière, the ancient, narrow streets which adjoin the Motes Saint-Victor and the Jardin des Plantes tremble, as they are violently traversed three or four times each day by those currents of coach fiacres and omnibuses which, in a given time, crowd back the houses to the right and the left, for there are things which are odd when said, that are rigorously exact, and just as it is true to say that in large cities the sun makes the southern fronts of houses to vegetate and grow, it is certain that the frequent passage of vehicles enlarges streets. The symptoms of a new life are evident. In this old provincial quarter, in the wildest nooks, the pavement shows itself. The sidewalks begin to crawl and to grow longer, even where there are as yet no pedestrians. One morning, a memorable morning in July 1845, black pots of bitumen were seen smoking there. On that day, 
it might be said that civilization had arrived in the Rue de l'Ourcine, and that Paris had entered the suburb of Saint Marceau. End of Book Fourth, Chapter One. Recording by Iswa in Belgium in March two thousand and nine.